welcome to The Well Podcast. We hope that this message will help you grow in your faith and give you practical ways to strengthen your relationships. To find out more, visit thewell.ca. Welcome to Church at the Well. This is the end of Live on Mission Week. And last week, we actually talked about the fact that the word mission, missions, is a bad word. And we were actually trying to rescue it to help us understand, wait, God is actually on a mission, and that mission is love. And so if you didn't catch that, go back. Um, But this week, we're talking about another bad word. Uh, The word is church. And here's what I mean by that. Like if tomorrow I ran into one of my neighbors or perhaps somebody um, that I'm related to or used to work with, former colleague or um, just a friend, and I said, yeah, yesterday we talked about the church and what does it mean to to be about the church? They may be nice, but probably under their breath can be like, who cares? The church? Who cares? You may have had that experience in a sense where very much so the people may, may know you go to church or it's something that's a part of your life, but they don't really care. It doesn't make any difference to their lives in their mind. Even more so, if we can be honest, in our current Canadian climate, um, it's not just that people don't care about church. Some people, whether they would say it out loud or not, but certainly some of the message that comes to us is, you know what, we kind of wish the church... Um, It may have been a part of our past, but we don't really think it should be a part of our future. People would have these kinds of perspectives across the board, whatever age you are, maybe your friends or family members or whatever, or neighbors. It's like that it's irrelevant. The church is irrelevant, that it's foolish to believe in that or that kind of faith in a way that, that it definitely should not be something in the public sphere. It should be kept very private. Like, don't believe it too much. Certainly don't talk about it. Don't try to convince other people that they should be a part of church or in some way. And to some degree, that the beliefs of religion in general, or perhaps even the Christian faith, are dangerous. This is a very different age that we are living in. This is, in part, our Canadian climate and our culture. Uh, If you were in Generation Z, so born between the ages of 1997 and 2012, um, Gen Z, um, they're saying that your generation, the first generation to grow up without any kind of institutionalized religion or faith in your background, and that only 9% of people in that category would um, be a regular part of any kind of a church. So even if you are a part of this church, generally your generation is not interested in it at all. They're like, yeah, don't really need that. Now, you add in two years of a pandemic where for many months at a time, we were not allowed to gather. We were not allowed to sing together. We were not allowed to eat together as a church. I mean, what kind of a church are you if you can't eat together? We couldn't pray together. We couldn't be in the same room. And that wasn't just about restrictions or, oh, now we had to be online. There was a massive disruption in what it means, of course, in every part of society, but certainly what it means to be the church. That many of us through that, not only has our mental health taken a hit, but our spiritual health in total has taken a hit. There's been a lot of disruption, disorientation, even feelings of disconnection from each other as the church and from God. And what does it even mean to be the church now? And how are we gathering? And Or you come back and you're like, where is everybody? Or how is this going to work? What does it even mean? Is this, and where is my faith in at this point? Two years has done some damage. So not only are we living in a culture and a climate that says we're not really sure the church is a good thing, it may be part of our past, we're not really sure we want it to be part of our future, and the disruption of two years of a pandemic where so much has changed in the way we think about church and faith. What does it even mean to be the church now? 
Now, in response to this and the culture we live in and the way we're at, there's really, to the risk of oversimplifying, two um, opposite but equally dangerous reactions or responses. One is to shake our fist, to be, to be the people who campaign for our religious rights, who are angry at the way the world and the culture wants to marginalize our faith or tell us to keep it private or, you know, say we need to fight, you know, that, that fist that says we need to fight. Remember the good old days when we used to pray in, in schools, when everybody went to church, that we need to campaign, that we can be angry at the world, that we can be judgmental towards people who are trying to marginalize us. We say we need to get the church back to where it was valued in society. We need to get out of the margins and back to the majority. That's one way to do it, to, to shake our fist. The other way is to throw up our hands and say, meh, just doesn't matter. What, what is that really gonna mean? And what does that look like to throw up our hands? That in many ways that church for some of us, for a lot of us, has become like a social network. Yep, I'm connected. I'm connected to these people and they meet a need. We happen to go to the same church or we happen to used to go to the same church, but now we're just part of a social network and I can take it or leave it, but I'm not really invested, deeply connected in it. It's more of a hobby than it is a lifestyle and a way of being. That this is just something that, you know, it might or might not come back, or I used to do it and I don't anymore. These are two opposite but equally dangerous responses, and they're dangerous for different reasons. The danger of shaking your fist is that over time you become something grotesque. You cannot shake your fist for any long period of time without becoming hard and judgmental on the inside and the outside, without becoming the very thing the world hates the church for, without becoming the very thing that we would look back in history and say, man, we've made a mess. You can't shake your fist for very long without becoming something grotesque. And so we need to be wary about that kind of posture and response to the world we find ourselves in. But equally dangerous and yet totally different. We cannot be naive for the fact that when you throw up your hands, the risk is that you become weak and old and thin and you disappear that we allow ourselves to simply become absorbed in the culture and over time, we just fade away. We disappear. That what used to be a conviction and a lifestyle and a family and a way of life is just one of many options in life. And over time, we weaken, we thin, we grow old, and we disappear. These are the two equally uh, dangerous but opposite reactions to the world we find ourselves in. We are, if I can say this, friends, in a crisis as a church, at a crisis point. History will look back on the church, capital C, around the world at this time. History will look back at the well and say, what did you decide to do given the world and the circumstances you were in? Who did you decide to become? Did you become something hard and grotesque? Or did you just disappear? This question and this crisis in one sense is not new. It's actually a few thousand years old. The name for it is exile. Exile is the condition and the place that the people of God actually have found themselves in many times. Maybe in history, most profoundly about 2,600 years ago, where the people of Jerusalem, the people of God who lived in Israel, were attacked by the Babylonians, the Babylonians who became kind of the, 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 the first world superpower. 
And what the Babylonians would do for any city and any country that they aimed to conquer was they would come in and they destroyed the temple. They destroyed the center of that um, country and that nation's religion. And so when they tore down the temple, it was saying, your God's not powerful. Your God's not in control. We are, our gods are now in control. And then they would tear down the city walls. So when they tore down the temple, they were tearing down their sense of religious and cultural identity. When they tore down the city walls, they were tearing down their sense of economic and ethnic and sort of um, geographic identity. They were saying, you're not safe anymore. The city walls were what kept you safe and strong. And so when those were destroyed, it was weakening a city. And then what they would do was kill some of the leaders very publicly to show their dominance and power. And then very strategically, they would export all of the people who were educated, who were wealthy, who um, were priests or um, political leaders who owned land, who had intellectual property that they valued. And they took them all to Babylon and they were going to brainwash them, get rid of their religion, get rid of their culture, get rid of their language, get rid of their way of life and harvest in a sense, all of the riches and all of the intellectual property and the wealth and the assets of the people that they took to make Babylon stronger. And they would leave all of the poor people, all the destitute people in the city who had no family, who had lost loved ones or whatever, so that the city would never be rebuilt, so it could never come back. This is what Babylon did to its enemies, and they did it to the people of God. And so the people of God became exiles in Babylon. And in Babylon, they faced the same, um, the same uh, challenges, the same temptations. Because in exile, let me describe this for you. You can see, even though it's 2,600 years old, it sounds strangely familiar. In exile, they were displaced and disoriented. In a sense, all of the markers of what was familiar and what was comfortable and what was home were either disrupted or destroyed. They were gone. It didn't feel like home anymore. It felt like a foreign place. It wasn't familiar. There was disruption and disorientation. Not only that, there was a feeling of powerlessness and disconnection. Powerlessness, like we are powerless to do anything about what has happened to this. And we actually feel God has not come through for us. We feel disconnected from God in this as well. And then they found themselves in a culture that was hostile to their culture, to their language, to their beliefs, and certainly their religion. This was the marks of exile. Does it sound familiar? I mean, 26, 700 years later, some of the details are different, but the environment and the experience is the same. We have faced and we feel, in a sense, disrupted and disoriented when the markers of what is familiar and comfortable have changed dramatically. When we don't feel like we're home, when this place that used to be familiar feels foreign to us now, and we don't know the landscape anymore, and the things that used to give us a sense of stability are actually dra dramatically changed or completely gone. We also feel a sense of powerlessness at what is happening around us, both in the environment and the world and the decisions that other people are making. And we wonder, where is God? God, where are you? We feel disconnected from him as well in many times. It's certainly in seasons like this. And we also find ourselves in a culture that would say, you know what, we'd rather you just stop talking about your faith. We'd rather you disappear. We don't need the church anymore. This is the experience of exile. And Israel also faced the same two temptations that we ourselves face here in exile so many hundreds of years later. To shake their fists, to hate the city, to hate the Babylonians, to hate the people, to see them as enemies and to say, this is, you're the reason for our problems, to be angry with them. And in a sense, the people were sitting outside of the city and refusing to be in the city. 
They were angry. They were shaking their fist at it. Or others just say, well, this is our new life. Let's just disappear. Our culture, our identity, our faith, our God, it's gone anyways. Let's just embrace the new world. They were faced with both those temptations and into that place, God sends a messenger. His name was Jeremiah. And he sent him with a letter to the people who were in exile, <laughs> inviting them out of those two reactions of shaking their fists or just throwing up their hands and disappearing. It's in a sense, God's manifesto for exile. How do we as the people of God thrive in exile? And I want you to listen to what he says. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehochin and the Queen Mother, the court officials and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem and the skilled workers and the artisans had gone into exile from Jerusalem. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also seek the peace of prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. To the people of God back then, and to us so many hundreds of years later, facing disruption, disorientation, powerlessness, feeling disconnected from each other and from God, facing a, a culture that was hostile to their way of life and to their beliefs. God says this, and he tells them one really important thing, the very first thing they needed to know. It's very interesting when you read the letter. He says, to the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar, you know, the, the megalomaniac uh, world leader, to the, to the exiles that Nebuchadnezzar carried into Babylon, he says, this is what I say. I carried you into Babylon. This is a very interesting turn of phrase. I know that what you saw was Nebuchadnezzar carrying you into Babylon. He destroyed the temple where I live and he took you away from, quote, me and brought you into Babylon. But God's saying, I walked with you. I am actually with you right here. Which is another way to say, you are not in the hands of your culture or your government. You are in the hands of God. You are not at the mercy of or in the power of your government or your culture. You are in the hands of God. They were so tempted to give power to this powerful king in this empire that had basically destroyed them in one fell swoop. Very easy, in a sense, to give power to the things that seem so visibly in control and controlling us. And God says, no, I am with you, even here in exile. And because of that, 
He says, I don't want you to shake your fist and I don't want you to disappear. Here's what I want you to do. And he tells them two really important things. Not only that we're the manifesto for exile, how to thrive in exile for them now, then, but us too. We in our, each of our three sites in King and Bolton and Vaughn, as we seek to say, what does it mean to be the church in this time? The very words that God gives them are the words he gives us as well. First, he says this, make this place home. If you notice the language, he says, build houses, plant gardens, increase, don't decrease. Another, and like, give your sons and daughters, be married, get like, and this is the interesting thing. In that day, your, 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 your children and your children's children were your future retirement plan. And basically he's saying, hey, you're sitting outside, you're waiting for this to be over. Stop waiting for this to be over in order to thrive. You can thrive in exile. You can be here, you can plant gardens, you can build houses, you can plan to be here for a long time. This isn't going away anytime soon. So put down roots. Put down roots, invest relationally. Stop waiting for normal. Don't slowly disappear. Friends, this is words for us today. Stop waiting for how it used to be. Stop talking about how it used to be. Stop thinking this is just gonna get fixed quickly. You can thrive in exile even if nothing feels normal. Even if everything is unpredictable and uncertain. Even if many things have been disrupted because God is here, you can make this place home. You can put down roots in this church. You can put your roots back down in this community to reinvest relationally. All of these things have been uprooted. We actually need to intentionally invest again and we need to stop waiting for normal or stop waiting till, oh, I have enough time to do it. We actually need to make this place home again and not just for ourselves, but for the world around us. I was reading an article last week about how someone was saying there are members of their family now because of the pandemic, because of the trucker protests or whatever, where they don't even talk to each other anymore. There are people who have felt like home has become a place of conflict, has become a place of disruption. And add that to the, the widespread feelings of isolation, fear, anxiety, depression, and the mental health crisis. There are so many people longing for a place that feels like home. And when we invest relationally, when we make our church family a family again, the institution needs to die. It may be dying, but are the people of God going to die with it? Not if we make this place home. Not if we invest relationally. Not if we create a relational center where people who are looking for a home will find it here. It's what God says to the exiles. And then he says, love the city. He says, seek the peace, which is the word shalom, we'll get to that later, and the prosperity of the city. This idea of, of peace, of integration, of whole life. The word shalom didn't just mean like oh, inner, inner sort of tra uh, tranquility. It meant all of life's relationships with each other, with ourselves, with God, with creation in, the, in a harmonious way. He says, seek the place and the prosperity, the welfare, the economic thriving of the city. That's why they were supposed to buy, build houses and plant vineyards and contribute to the economic and the social and the relational fabric and thriving of this place. And he says something so profound to them. He says, because in its welfare is your welfare. It's like he was taking, hey, your well-being and this city that you're living, now their well-being and your well-being are tied together. If it prospers, you will prosper. If it thrives, you will thrive. 
Don't shake your fist at the culture and the place that feels hostile to you. Love it. Don't shake your fist at it. Love this city. Now think about that. He was not saying this to people who had a ton of extra time on their hands, who had a lot of emotional reserves, who were in a really good place to go, okay, now my life is settled, I can start thinking about other people. Their whole lives had been disrupted. They had zero emotional reserve. They barely escaped with their lives. They had just seen their, some of their family die. They had been uh, taken out of their homes. The city walls had been destroyed. The temple had been destroyed. They were now in this completely foreign land and they're staring at the city and God says, you know these people, I know you want to see them as their enemies. I know you want to be angry angry with them. I know you want to shake your fist at them, but I actually want you to love it. I actually want you to, to invest and seek the welfare and the shalom of this very place. If we think it's hard to love and seek the welfare of others right now, it might have seemed impossible, inconceivable, almost offensive to them that God was saying this to them. Not only make this place home, but actually love this place that you don't even want to be. Why? Well, he goes on to say a verse which I did not read for you because maybe some of you already have it tattooed on your body or it's in some place in your house or whatever. And we quote it a lot and I'm afraid we misquote it because we apply it to anything and everything we want to do. Here's what the verse says. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Maybe you've never heard that verse before. Maybe you heard it before. This is what he was saying it for. When you make this place home, this place that feels like for, a foreign place, that feels like disruption, that feels like disconnection, where you feel disoriented and you're tempted to just wait and wait and wait until you feel more comfortable. When you invest relationally, when you put down roots, and when you love the city that you're in, when instead of shaking your fist at the world around you, you love it, you serve it, you seek its well-being. He says, do it because... I have plans for you. And my plans, as you make this home, as you love the city, are to prosper you and not to harm you, are to give you hope now and a future to come. Friends, that is beautiful. This is the manifesto for the church in exile, in our day and our time, for all three of our sites in King City, in Bolton, and in Vaughan, to put down roots in that place, invest relationally, and to love the city and the town where you're in. In a moment, we're going to talk about what that looks like in each of our respective sites. But I want to pause here and give us a chance to respond in worship. It's a song called Build My Life. It's a picture of actually investing, of building a home, of making a foundation. It says, I'll build my life on your love, God, and then lead me in that to the people around me. So let's pause and use this as a prayer of response, as a prayer of the exiles. Worthy of every song we could ever sing Worthy of all the praise we could ever Jesus' name. 
Of all.